Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Morris speaking. You're listening to episode 159 of the Love It Album podcast. This show is proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion podcasts. Welcome on board. Glad for your company. So this time around, I'm not actually going to discuss an album, but we are going to discuss lots of albums. Does that make sense? I don't know. I'll let you be the judge. Carrying on a theme from the See Here podcast released this month, episode 99, this show will be about discussing album covers and album cover design. So on the See Here podcast, we spoke with a fellow called Kevin Hossman about his new film called The Album. The focus of that film is to speak to lots of album cover designers through classic rock through to today. And we spoke with Kevin about mostly his experiences in album cover design, because that's what his day gig was until he decided to make this film. But for this show, I'm speaking with a fellow podcaster from the Pantheon Network, Stephen Jurgensmeyer. He runs an excellent show called All Music Podcasts Deep Dive. And the focus of that show is about music-related books. But his day gig is to design album covers. He's had a lot of experience with designing album covers for Ryko Disc and Rounder Records. And those are both labels that loom large in my collection. And hopefully there are some in yours. So if that's the case then you might well have some of Stephen's album cover designs. We're going to be speaking about some of those album covers, and we're going to also talk about his philosophy towards album cover design, what makes an album cover good, what makes it not so great. I have to say that speaking with Stephen was an absolute delight. 
Very, very fascinating guy. Really, really lovely guy. And I'll be including in the liner notes links to his website so you can check out some of the album covers that he's designed, including the ones that we've discussed in the show, and also a link to his podcast, All Music Books Deep Dive. And actually, they've also taken on from time to time episodes where they discuss music-related films. So that is certainly a show that is well worthy of your time. So before I get into actually playing you the chat that I had with Stephen, I'd like to just sort of bring to your attention that on my other program, See Here, that I do with Bernard Stickwell and Tim Merrill, although Tim's on sabbatical at the moment, we're about to do episode 100. Now, if you've listened to the show, that you'd know that for quite a fair bit of time over the last two or three years, we've been doing interviews with film directors who have made music documentaries and the like. And whilst we really get a whole lot of a buzz out of doing that, next month is going to be a round table, the way how we did it for most of the show's history. And we'll hopefully get back to that. We've got one more interview coming up in September, but we'll be going back to round tables for a while because they're quite fun. Episode 100 we'll be talking about Milos Forman's film Amadeus and there is so much thematically to this film and so much to the original play that is worthy of a roundtable discussion. We sort of figured episode 100 had to be something big and Amadeus is a pretty big and important film of the 80s. We've invited to join us two of our mentors from the podcasting world. Two people who really have been a big influence on the way we run See Here. And one of them will be Mike White of The Projection Booth and the other one will be Will Smith, co-host of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Bernie and I are both thrilled to have both of these gentlemen make themselves available to discuss this important film with us. So if you haven't listened to See Here before, Episode 100 is as good a place to try as any. You can find us at See Here, that's S-W-H-E-A-R, See here podcast.blogspot.com or search for us in any of the usual places that you get your podcasts. So now that I've uh, gone and hijacked the show with details about the other podcast, sit back and enjoy the interview that I have with Stephen Jurgensmeyer in his role as album cover designer and a little bit about his podcast. I'll be back after the interview to talk with you about the next episode of Love That Album. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Welcome back to episode 159 of Love That Album Podcast and continuing album cover design month. Go listen to the See Here podcast episode 99 if you want to hear some more album cover design talk. 
But on Love That Album here, I have the host of the excellent all-music podcast, Deep Dive podcast, where they discuss music-related books. But by day, my guest, Stephen Jergensmeyer, is an album cover designer. So I thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk about something that's not quite musical, but is still musical. We'll see. Anyway, welcome to the show, Stephen. Lovely to have you on. Well, thank you for having me, Maurice. I love your podcast. Thank you kindly. Well, the feeling is mutual. We've got a mutual admiration society going on. The main purpose of the show is to discuss your work as an album cover designer and to find out what you find appealing in other people's work. But as we've already gone and started this off, you are the host of the wonderful All Music Books Deep Dive podcast. And you've actually recently branched out into discussing music-related films, something which I hold very close to my heart. So can you talk a little bit about the podcast and in fact i know you've had the site up for many years before you actually even started the podcast so talk me through a bit about all music books well all music books i've always read a lot about music and it goes back to kind of my formation as a teenager uh i was a huge cream magazine fan you know circus as well a little bit trouser press for sure but cream was really important to my whole musical education and uh, i grew up in an area here in the states that back in the 70s wasn't that hip i went cream magazine right you know moved up to boston and went to university up here and uh, got a job at a label of course the label work is always iffy and after 20 something years in it i know you're in winter right now one winter i found myself you know the second independent record company i had worked for got bought by a major and i was the head of the creative department which means my head rolls first which is fine <laughs> but i was sitting on my couch in the middle of winter and stacks of books and I just love books and I said you know I should just build a community podcast because I have so many friends that read music books and we all recommend them to each other and I said if I build a free community podcast you know where people can recommend books you can buy books through Amazon you can rate it you can review it you can rate other people's reviews wouldn't that be cool so I worked for about a year on that and right before I launched Goodreads comes out. And I was like, oh, crap. I should just shit can this whole thing. So I go to the Goodreads new launch site, and I just Google in music. And the only thing that ever comes up on their site are like teen romances that have to do with music. And, you know, I'm a much different thing. We do all genres except classical. And there's about 10,000 books on our site and a couple thousand reviews. And I said, okay, so we are different. So I moved forward with that. And, and you know, as I continued to expand the site, I would reach out to artists. This is back in the old school days. And I would, you know, say, do you want to do a five question? So I'd send them five questions via email and they'd send it back to me. So that's where the podcast evolved from, because obviously at some point people are sick of reading emails or blogs or whatever, and they want the live experience. So I guess it was probably, I mean, we're 130 episodes in, something like that. You know, it was all books to start, but you got to evolve or die, right? It turned out that music documentaries, it seems like there's a, a great new one every week now. I mean, there's so many. And unfortunately, with the age gap, I think less people are reading. So we just decided, I, I know a few people, film directors, and so I started with people I knew. And uh, it's fascinating. It's a lot of fun. You know, I read all the books that I interview authors of because I think that's appropriate. And the film bought me a little more time as we increased our schedule. It's an hour and a half or so mm. instead of 400 pages. So, uh, you know, it's been a ton of fun. For the last 
eight and a half years for See Here podcast, we've been talking about music-related films, not necessarily always documentaries, but the last three years, roughly or so, we've been doing a lot of interviews with film directors, filmmakers, because like books, I mean, they're telling a story, but they're doing it another way. And I mean, I, I often feel you want to know the complete story or as close to the complete story, you'll read a book. But I think often find that if you're watching a really, really great film, that will convince you to maybe go out and search out a book. There was one that was on Netflix, I think, called What Happened, Miss Simone? I think that was what it was called. I love that. You know, I, I watched that and I sort of thought, well, this is interesting, but I really think I'm going to find out a whole lot more by reading a book. This is more like, here's some stuff that you might not know. And there, I, I didn't know anything about Nina, apart from a love of the music before actually watching that film. But I found that that was a good jumping off point to then go out and search out a book. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you've sort of gone and made that divergence because they're both mediums of telling stories. Part of my philosophy being an artist is, you know, especially with books and, and films as well, but books is where I started. And a lot of times these people are fans. I mean, there's occasionally the hateful book or whatever, but, you know, they're fans and they spend, you know, years of their life trying to draft this story about someone they love or they appreciate or what it is. And I really wanted to shine a light on the people behind it. You know, we've done a few interviews with artists. We just recently did Stephen Van Zandt. We did Michael DeBar about his film. And it's fascinating, but it's a whole different take than talking to the writer or the director. You know, it's just they're, they're wired differently. Yep. And we'll continue to do both. But, you know, my goal was to shine the light on, on the folks who really, you know, th they're fans. I can't remember her name now, but the lady who you spoke to about ska music, particularly the ladies of ska, big fan of original Jamaican ska and reggae music, and her book was excellent. Uh, and she's written a few. Heather Augustine. That's the one, yeah. Great interview, and I agree with you. I mean, I'm a huge Rocksteady fan. I like Scott too, but Rocksteady is my pocket, you know. And I, I just that music is so incredible, you know, and the stories behind it, you know, in such a male-dominated industry and such a male-dominated country. And the the women are just incredible artists, you know. All right, so let's start talking about your day job as album cover designer. So whenever you read about a musician saying, right, well, I first picked up the guitar, I first picked up the drum kit or if they're old enough they say i saw the beatles on ed sullivan that seems to be the most common response but certainly you know there are millions of stories from musicians saying i listened to this album it blew me away and i knew i had to take up this instrument and actually just as a bit of an aside we spoke with the director alan arkush on the see here podcast he said that watching a hard day's night convinced him that he wanted to become a film director. I said, oh, well, not, not pick up a guitar, not pick up a bass or something. He said, no, I wanted to be a film director. I wanted to tell those sorts of stories. And he's a music film expert. But starting off, do you remember, independent of the music contained therein, what was an early example of an album cover that you saw that really sparked your imagination? And had you just been looking at album covers to a point just like, oh, yeah, well, this is just what holds the music inside that I want to listen to. But was there an album cover that you thought, oh, man, I really love this. I want to start drawing. 
Oh, well, I'm not a fine artist. So I suck at drawing, but I'm a pretty good designer. And especially typography is really important to me. But it all goes back to what your music ideals were. And, you know, I was surrounded by kids who were listening to stuff that I didn't really care to, as I mentioned with Cream Magazine. One of the first, and it might have been one of the first records I bought with my own money in vinyl, is um, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Now, Ziggy played guitar, jamming good with weird and gilly. And the music in there is obviously amazing, but the cover perfectly encapsulates what you're about to hear and who Bowie was at that point. And I can go down the line, too. I mean, Aladdin saying, I love that record, and there's a whole different Bowie that's perfectly represented by the artwork. And you take it one step further to Heroes, which is a whole different thing, but that cover is brilliant and totally represents that style of music that he was playing at that point. Sorry to interrupt you here, but just because you mentioned Heroes, I have to ask, just as a quick aside, when you saw the cover of The Next Day, did you think, David, what the fuck have you done? I heard you say that on your other podcast, and uh, I laughed and I went and checked it out. You know, it's really hard to say. I don't quite get it. I think there's probably some conceptual thought behind it that I I don't get. I don't know. You know, that came out just like two weeks before he died. Is that the one that came out? It was pretty shortly before he died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, weeks. So who knows? You know, I don't know. I, I don't really get it. It's not one that I would frame and put it up in my basement walls like some of the other favorites. But uh, it's a good record, though. Very good record. But yeah, the cover, you know, it is what it is, right? Sorry, I interrupted you. You're talking David Bowie in the covers. You know, it depends. There's so many many i mean the periods you go through and you know another one i, I was just a huge thin lizzy fan and live and dangerous it's just like mm. that is exactly that band You know, London Calling, that is genius. There's so many of them, and and there's so many different styles, and there's some styles I'm not necessarily a fan of the music or the artwork, uh, as everybody has their their stuff. It's interesting to go back. A lot of us originally hear music before our friends or music guides, as some people call them, but like through your parents. My mom was a huge country western fan, and, you know, I remember flipping through Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, she saw in concert, and Chris Christopherson and all these people. And, of course, I thought it was all bullshit then, but now I love it, you know, (laughs) so you learn right and yep. you grow uh, and the artwork is a huge part of that I mean it's the first thing you see and and especially if you're interested in exploring different music that's your first entry point before you've heard it I know you want to talk about philosophies and stuff at some point later but you know to me you know as a designer if the album cover doesn't represent you know it could be a few different things the artist the artist's image more importantly the music experience you're about to hear then I think you've failed at your job in your mind is the album cover supposed to it, I mean it sounds obvious that it's, it's supposed to reflect the music contained therein but do you ever sort of like get an, a, an artist who comes to you and says right well you know who I am or, or maybe or maybe you don't but I do something like this are you ever sort of thinking right well I'm going to do an artwork independent of the music just based on what I think the personality of this person is like I, I'm not sure I'm making a whole lot of sense but is it always supposed to reflect the music that you've heard no i think you're you just made that point i think it can equally represent the artist as a person or as a product or personality right it's not necessarily 
Bowie the, the music. But those things to me are sort of entwined. But sometimes Bowie is a good example. If you're going to break the mold, you probably want to do something different visually than you've done in the past, right? So, you know, I think you can do it both ways. There have been times for sure any designer has kind of been told what to do and what the artist wants. And you kind of become, you know, a hired risk trying to execute what their vision is, which is, you know, I have no problems with that. You know, at the end of the day, if you're a big artist, that's your face out there on a million records, not mine, thank God. That um, <laughs> you've executed what they want, you know, and there, there are a few in my thing that did that. There's always some kind of pushback, you know, I mean, it's like any job, there's you get every shade in between in terms of what people are looking for. I've been really lucky you know, working with independent labels and, and people who, you know, there's always a sense of trust, right? And there's a few stories and artists I can tell who I've developed a great sense of trust with. And Branford Marsalis is one who, a jazz musician, I've done a, a lot of covers for him. And the last few times I worked with him, he would send me an advanced cassette and he told me, design what you hear. Mm. And that's incredibly freeing but you better get it right i did have a question later on specifically related to four motherfuckers playing tunes best album title ever independent of you as a designer yourself is there a style of artwork or cover design that appeals to you not necessarily stuff that you may do for yourself so like in the film that we both recently watched the album directed by Kevin Hossman, who we've both spoken to, he pointed out Roger Dean's artwork for those early albums from Yes, very fantastical, or I can't remember his name, Barry Golder or something like that, uh, his painting on the front cover of In the Court of the Crimson King, hugely iconic painting. Just not you as a practitioner, but you as a music fan, as an album owner, is there a style that appeals to you above or, or, or do you actually prefer looking? at the sort of covers that inspire you to do your own design all of the above <laughs> you know i'm not a huge progressive rock fan it's not that i don't like those covers but i think they represent the music perfectly and i know a lot of fans who are really into that and they're really into it and i have to say that roger dean and all those guys clearly are geniuses and, and at the top of the list of doing what they do you know um you know illustration is a little bit harder you know in, in my interview with the album's director and art director you know i brought this up that you know illustration is, is a different gig you know i don't know really i've done a couple and they're very 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 minimalist but that was also the idea but you know illustration generally speaking you know when you hire an illustrator you hire them to do what they do as a creative director, you're kind of the person at the forefront trying to decide what direction to go in for the artist, whether that be a photographer, an illustrator, whether it be ambient. You know, I've worked with Steve Olson, who is a jazz drummer here in the States, and he is is a huge fan of abstract art. And so we've tried to create some of that, which is not necessarily something I do. Uh, you can find stock images now and manipulate them, and that's a dream. And I've definitely had artists who's like, I don't care what you do. Do, what you, do whatever you want to do, <laughs> which is difficult, you know. And then I've had people tell me exactly what to do. I probably tend, if I have a style, and I'll get into why I don't necessarily think I do, but if I do, it's, it's very clean. And, you know, I'm really into typography. I want to make sure it's readable. And I like photography, you know. I just, you know, the classic things. I know that you spoke about Blue Note, 
yes. uh, with the record jar. And I'm a huge fan of that stuff. And, you know, you could probably go through my catalog of design and say, ooh, that looks blue notey and that looks blue notey. And, you know, <laughs> I would never take exception to that. I'm like, thank you. You know, I mean, I think they did a marvelous job. You know, those are records from the 40s and 50s that visually, graphically still stand the test of time. And that's why they're actually putting out coffee table books of blue note records, because independent of the fantastic music that those album covers contain, you can look at those album covers as works of art in their own right. And really, they are works of art. They're beautiful. And, you know, you mentioned your sky on a reggae fan as I am and you know I went down to Jamaica in the early 80s and I still have a lot of those vinyl and some of those records some people might say wow that's not well designed and I'm like oh my god that's genius are you kidding me you know Ranking Toy and how the West was one which takes the Jamaican slants on these wild wild west uh, American movie it's brilliant I've got one framed in my office most of the punk rock stuff was life-changing for me you know because of the whole you know it blew everything up yep. you know i mean jamie reed and the, and the sex pistols and and uh, it just opens up different areas of your mind. Now you got to figure out what's appropriate for any particular job, right? Mm. Um, you never know. You know, I've thrown some crazy shit out there. Most of it probably got you know second place in terms of what the artist wanted, but occasionally, I was like, wow. And so you know, that's fun. That's great. I know that you worked earlier on in your career for um, a couple of labels I absolutely love, Ryko Disc and Rounder Records, Rounder being big champion of so much Americana music that I love. Was that where you actually started album cover design? Had you done something before joining Ryko? So what was the first album cover you designed? That's going to be a tough one for me to recall because I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. I came to Boston to go to Boston University. One, because it was the best school I got into. Two, when I did my college tour up here, I made sure to stop in the Rat, which was Boston CBGBs, and that blew my mind. And I had a friend up here whose sister was a few years older, and uh, she they were at Boston College, which is right down the road. And in their cafeteria, they had this band, legendary Boston band called Human Sexual Response, and they played one night there. And I was like, blown away and then there was another gig that weekend in a hotel ballroom that had uh la peste the neighborhoods and mission of burma all just heavy duty boston punk pants i think it was five or six bucks to get in and i was like if i get in i'm gone to boston right so music was a huge lure to me to the boston area it had a great music scene as well as education and i i, I did major in uh, communications spe specializing in advertising and i had a mentor who hired me for his agency out of school. So I worked in the advertising business for a couple of years. And then a very good friend of mine found a quarter page ad in an ad business magazine that was for a Ryko disc gig. And I don't think I'd heard of them until I did some research on them. And there was only six people when I got hired there. I got hired as the assistant art director. And uh, at that point, this is pre-computer revolution, right? So you're still doing the mechanicals and pasting the type down and putting down tissue paper with your color breaks. So that's the one reason that I couldn't quite tell you. Because first of all, Ryko disc was mostly a CD label mm. and they were doing reissues so you're, you're scanning the LPs and shrinking them down to CD size and they hadn't they just started working with Frank Zappa at that point 
But they were doing a lot of uh, licensing, you know, and they were working with Rounder, surprisingly, and doing some compilations like from their catalog, like bluegrass comps or folk comps or acoustic comps, right? So I couldn't tell you what it was, but no, I didn't have any experience. You know, my experience was, you know, drawing the Thin Lizzy or the ACDC logos on my high school notebooks. <laughs> As we all did. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think anybody's got that passion. And and so I started working there. I stayed there for 15 years or something, you know, something like that and the woman who hired me uh, she was the, the creative director and eventually left so I assumed that job and went through hired a bunch of uh, designers under me they were all terrific and um, you know Rikidus had a, they were very notable for their design and that started at the top of the company with the president when I spoke earlier of not being pigeonholed to a style which a lot of designers have a style and sometimes that gets you hired but the president of Rikidus because they had such a wide vision of music they did everything Hendrix Zappa Bowie reggae uh, everything and he was very much, I don't want a style, I want, you know, the graphics to represent the music, right. you know. And so you had to be able to adapt, you know. If you were going to bring a style that would fit, you know, a heavy metal band, and then your next project is jazz, you were in a corner. So you had to be adaptive, and uh, and I think that really helped me, you know, and, and learn to kind of ask the right questions for, for musicians about what they were seeking, or maybe more often their managers, but a lot of times the musicians, <laughs> about what they were seeking, you know, for their visuals. Going through your website, and I did see a couple of Ryko Disc albums, I thought, oh, wow, an artist who I love. Wow, he did that. So uh, there's a Kelly Joe Phelps album, and um, he's, he's looking very plaintive on the front cover. And rest in peace, Kelly. I think he just passed away just a few weeks ago from the time we we're recording this. John Trudell, who I want to get into separately. Chucky Weiss, Old Souls and Wolf Chuck Tickets. I mean, I remembered his name being a longtime Tom Waits fan, but man, that album just it hits me where I live. And I just love you know he's he's sitting out in the front with a friend and having a presumably having a coffee or something like that and the music is not exactly relaxed but i think that cover it's friendly and it represents the music yep. perfectly that's a perfect case of a lot of times what it is and, and why i always say that typography is so important because sometimes in that particular one that was the photo that was selected it's like this is the photo so now what are you going to do with it how are you going to crop it where's the type going to go and you know back in those days there's a lot of rules there's the top third rule where cds when they got in the racks the name of the record or the name of the artist had to be above the rack right mm. Which was very confining, you know? You know, Rikidus came up and did paper OBs, which we could put the title on if it was not in the same place. But, you know, I, I had a lot of fights about that, you know, with salespeople and marketing people, because sometimes it didn't work. And I understand their job, but it's different from my job. My job is that that record, once it's out of the bin and has been bought, should stand as a piece of art on itself, right? And so that's it's a different gig, you know? And somehow you have to satisfy those two. And it really depends on what the options are, right? The commercial people are saying, create something that sells it once. You're saying, I want to create something that keeps on selling it. You go back to the CD rack or the record cover rack, and you keep wanting to pull that out because that picture evokes warm feelings and reminds you what so much why you love the music. But a designer, and I understand that every cover, every artist will be its own thing. But what are some of the 
rules that you may have set for yourself or that you learnt when you were at the uni of Boston that you said you must never, ever, ever do X, Y, Z. Are there any of those sorts of rules? Is everything just its own thing? Or they're just something we say, under no circumstances will I ever do this, regardless of what the artist wants or what the company wants? Probably the one that jumps to mind is never, ever, ever use Comic Sans as a font. Interesting. <laughs> I say that jokingly, but you see it pop up. I don't know. It's hard to say. There are obviously there are always rules in graphic design but rules are made to be broken you know sure so I would say if you look at my work on my website. I'll be providing a link to that for people to uh, scan and they'll see exactly what we're talking about with some of these album covers. Well, you know, I think that most of my stuff is highly readable. There's always that thing. You know, I've also had fights with people who say, well, the people don't see the title of the record as they're walking past it. They're not going to buy it. I disagree with that. And I said, as a huge music fan, if I go into a music store, I'm going to check every darn bin until I find what I came in to find, regardless of what I see. You know, I've had conversations with people, you know, I always love doing O cards and slipcases and those kinds of things. And people just throw away the O card when they get home. And I just looked at them and I said, are you kidding me? I don't know anyone who does that. You know, I tried to thwart that by on some records, I'd put a different image on the cover than the O card and sometimes without a title. So it's like, well, if they throw away the O card, then all the rules are broken, right? On CDs especially, it gave you more options for kind of imagery and packaging. But you know, as far as rules, that's a it's a good question. You know, there, there are a few that are probably boring for most listeners, but I would say that, you know, it depends on the job. It depends on the job. Mm, no hard and fast rules. Well, no comic sense. Apart, apart from comic sense. to some specific albums very very shortly that you've designed but going by the examples that are on your website you primarily work with photography you've already gone and said that yourself not necessarily a good drawer or painter not not a fine artist you tend to work with manipulation of existing photography etc etc i know that you've looked at my site and there's a page called backstories where i talk about some of them and i'm not sure if you've looked at the one but one of the ones that i'm super proud of where i did do the illustration was for a kind of a nouveau jazz band called orange symphonette and um they did a whole album cover of mancini tunes right and so I did that illustration, which is very simple, maybe a little bit rough. Originally, it's empty theater seats with the name of the band up in these old school lights. And it's very, very rough. But I love it. And in the original version, you know, because it's Mancini, you know, I just put over one of the seats that from the back, the Pink Panther's head and ears that I hand drew. And of course, uh, the legal department said, no, you can't do that. So I had <laughs> I had to pull it out, but I think it still stands the test of time. But if you go to my website and go to Backstories, it's got both versions. So I can do it, but not at a high level. You know what I mean? Like if somebody really wants Roger Dean, then don't hire, you know, Stephen Jurgenswire, you know. <laughs> no, that's not what it is. You know, and a lot of it too is what the, the band and the label 
want. Uh, marketing people don't really care for illustration. Mm. It depends on the music. I've done some stuff, but to your point, a lot of photos, a lot of photography, you know, it just covers your ass, you know? So when you're working for a particular album, we'll speak specifically to Branford Marsalis' case in a moment, but do you primarily say to the photographer, listen, this is what I imagine we'd like for this artist's album cover. Can you take some photos under these circumstances or do they just come to you with listen i spoke with the artist this is what they wanted this is what i got you do your job this is the I, i've done this creative side you do your bit how, how does that work both ways and always you know uh, working at independent labels unless it was in the area boston area uh, i rarely went on photo shoots there's a few but if they were in la or london or new york i didn't fly to those shoots because quite frankly as an independent label the label and, and my philosophy was pay the money to the photographer you know and we'll go through it beforehand and we've done both things like i, I would sketch out things and, you know you mentioned a couple of them and say this is exactly what i want you've got room to move but this is the concept it's more if it's the concept right right, right. i think there was things like you know on my website kelly willis that record what i believe i believe it's called i was working on that picture and she's a beautiful blonde country singer and I was just working. I didn't have the final photographs. I had a Xerox. And I kept working on these things and scanning in Xeroxes and putting pieces together. And it really had this little glowing effect. And when I sent it to her, and she just loved it. And then when I got the final real photograph and put that in, it wasn't the same. And so we used Xerox because that's what she loved and that's what she had. So, you know... Sometimes you make it up as you go along, you know, and, and in all ways, you know, like if you hire a really good photographer, Pamela Springsteen for uh, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, and she did another Alison Krauss record, it's kind of like you trust that they will give you what you want, mm. you know, and they, they, you know, part of it is. Uh, and again, in the, in the the album film, you talk about this. Uh, there are relationships formed, especially with a photographer. They have to gain the trust of the artist, so they let down their guard. And you know, you choose, try and choose somebody who you think will get along. You know, and you know, there have been bad situations for sure. Any that you faced? Were there any situations where the artist came back screaming and yelling and saying, "Stephen, what have you done? This is shit." I'll take the fifth. Okay. Uh, no, not really, not really, not screaming and yelling, but maybe more work had to be put in because it wasn't quite what they're looking for but you know generally speaking uh, no. All right. So I do want to go now to about half a dozen specific examples of your work and get your thinking. I mean, look, a couple of these uh, albums that you've actually gone and written about on the website, you wrote some really wonderful essays there that go through the process. But this is an audio medium. Hopefully, some people might then go to the website after hearing you tell the story. And one of the albums that actually, I think I've read this on Branford Marsalis's own website, you'd done like a few albums for Branford, but the one that you go into great detail, I think, in this interview with is about four MFs playing tunes. The company didn't want to go for motherfuckers, so we'll go with four MFs playing tunes. So as I understand it there, that was conceptually what you had come up with. And so for the people who haven't seen the album cover, this is really more about the whole album layout. Can you give a bit of a description as to what you came up with? I think this is brilliant. Well, 
you know, it's really more about the music because that whole concept, which I came up with and literally it's sketched out, you know, pencil sketches, and I may have gotten, and that might be a little early. I, might, I don't know if I really put something together. I did mostly, maybe, maybe I did some roughs uh, with found photographs and stuff. But that was a new band that Branford had started playing with, and he was really, really, really happy with the band. And as I recall, he told me, he said, you know, this band, it's just so hot, and everybody just plays off of each other, and everybody intuitively knows where they're going, and it's just like the best band I've had. You know, I just love playing with these guys. So I came up with the concept, and, and you know, a lot of times album covers, are just not the design sometimes stems from the title of a record. You know, what are you trying to, to tell the people? Uh, this record didn't have a name yet. This was a little bit of a tough one to shoot, but it came out really, really well. I told Bradford, I said, well, then you're going to be on the cover, obviously. So what if we put you in a desk chair? And then we have all the other the three, it's a quartet, uh, the other three musicians walking behind you really quickly and, you know, bumping into you, walking in circles. And we'll have the photographer open up the shutter speed so those guys are all blurred, right? And so what happens then is it gives the visual of these musicians working around Branford but it's a blur which kind of represented what the music not that it was blurry but that, that it was a work in progress so to speak right and then the most fun part about this is I also said and this is the beauty of the CD packaging I said, so since we're doing this, let's do it with each musician. So for three times, Bramford got up with the other guys and walked behind the one guy centered in the chair. And so that took that to the next level. Like every musician revolved around every other musician, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the, the concept behind it. The most fun part, especially for like the drummer, you know, who doesn't get to be on the cover much, is I came up with a way to fold the booklet and we put the title on every page. So you could fold the booklet four different ways and every member could be the star on the front of the booklet, right? Bramford loved this and it came out, I was so happy with it. Like sometimes it's hard to execute that really high concept art, you know, and and the other Bramford songs of Mirth and Melancholy was another one. But this one, you know, he was so happy with it and I'm just cropping these images and there's plenty of white space for a title. But we were on a meeting. It was Bramford, myself, the head of his label, and then the woman that I worked with, uh, Sherry McAdams, who's great to work with. And uh, we're just talking about this. And he's like, well, what, you know, what do you think you want to call this album, Bramford? You know, and he, finally he just goes, I don't give a shit. Call it four motherfuckers playing tunes. <laughs> and I was under the call, right? And I don't know if he left the call or if I called Sherry back, but I said, you know what? That's a perfect title. <laughs> I said, what do you think? Do you think we can do that? She's like, I don't know. And we mocked it up and we went for MFers instead of the full, full on dirty word. And it flew. Wow. I mean, you know, it was literally Branford just saying, I don't care what you call it, call it for MF. And, and it was just like, <laughs> afterwards, you think about it, it fits the visual so perfectly. It was great. It was so much fun. I love that. I love that cover. What did Branford say when he actually saw the cover? Did he say, shit, I didn't actually expect you were going to do it? Oh, no, no. He loved it. He, he was 100%. 100%. Isn't it? I mean, it worked so perfectly. It was just like genius on his part, you know? I mean, I, I would never have come up with that title. <laughs> like, organized and it's perfect. I mean, it's, it, it is perfect because it aptly describes what is contained therein, but it also sounds very casual. It's not trying to be self-aggrandizing or anything like that. It's just, yeah, we're just four guys doing what we do. Exactly. It's, it's the total jazz ethos boiled down to its bare minimum. Yeah. We're just four motherfuckers playing tunes. I don't know what you want out of it. You know? <laughs> what you want. Some sunny day, baby, when everything seems okay, baby, you wake up and find that you're alone, because I'll be gone. 
next album I want to talk about, and you also wrote an essay about this one. Would you say this is your most well-known cover, is Raising Sand, Alison Krauss and Robert Plant. It is such a beautiful cover. The photos that were taken for this really show a, a level of comfort between the two of them. And I think I remember at the time there was, uh, you know, he basically said, uh, when, when Jimmy Page said, hey, let's go out on tour, you know, this big concert that we did, uh, there's interest, let's go out. And, and it seems like Robert Plant basically said, you know what, I'd much rather hang out with Alison Krauss than hang out with you and the guys, you know. And, and you look at the two of them on the front cover and you think, wise decision. You know, the two of them just look so happy to be in each other's presence. I think that that's very reflective of the warmth of the music within, you know. I mean, that's a, it's an amazing record, and who would have thunk that pairing? Um, I had worked with Allison on a couple of records before. Mm. You know, sometimes Rounder would, would freelance out some of the bigger projects, but when I got there, I'd worked on some pretty big projects at Riker Disc. That live album that you designed the cover, that was the first Alison Krauss album I bought. I mean, I got about three or four, uh, but that was the first mm -hmm. one, and I said, oh, shit, Stephen designed that one too. Yeah, that one, because they didn't have much, and you know, that came down to how do you solve a band's shot when there's only individual shots. So that was kind of almost like math for a designer, you know? And I think it works, you know? I think it works. But with Raising Sand, Pamela Springsteen had shot the album before it, and shot in the diner. I think it's New Favorites is the title. Mm -hmm. Have to double on that. I think so. And they had shot that, and they were really happy with her. And that's a really great cover. And so, like we spoke before about the trust that a photographer has to earn, so to speak, to get that natural feeling, right? And she had it in spades on Raising Sand. And, you know, she shot a lot of it in black and white. There weren't many color shots. And uh, there's, I love the cover inside where there's the close-up of their two faces. It's just really mm. joyous and beautiful. You know, the cover of them walking on the beach was a last-minute thing. And um, Robert really liked it. Pamela really liked it. Allison liked it. And so we started. I started working with that. It, it represented a little bit of a problem for type readability, but we fixed that. She shot that in 35 minutes like right at uh, sunset so it got this really grainy effect which to me only enhanced whole vision right you know funny story about that you know someone at rounder did not like that and asked me to try and fix it and we spent some money trying to fix it and it just looked like shit it came down to the point where pamela and i you know said you can't take the grain out choose another picture because that's part of the whole image right that was the last shoot of the day i believe uh in la on a beach there you know like you say like the back cover picture where robert's got his back to you and, and allison's looking over it's just great. I mean, there is a serious warmth and connection evident in that shoot, and it just perfectly reflects the music. I'm certainly glad that the graininess is part of that photo, part of that design. It seems to represent something old world. The new favorite cover, in fact, like any of the other Alison Krauss covers, they're all nice and crisp and clean. And this is a different project and maybe it warranted a different approach. And you wouldn't necessarily have gotten that same level of warmth, I think, with a color photo or with a crisp and clean photo. This is saying this is old world. This is old school. We're doing some old tunes out, done our way. And I think that that's a case where the cover perfectly reflects the musical content. I agree with you 100%. But also, if you take it uh, for Allison's career, it's mostly, you know, nice color photo shoots in the studio and this, that. And I think... I don't know if Led Zeppelin had, they might have had a black and white album cover, but it was much different, you know, it was much more rock and roll and energy and this and that. And this, this was just something different for both of them that just perfectly represented.
album that I want to ask you about. This is just because it's an album I adore. The weird thing is that I never considered myself much of a Husker Du fan, but I love Bob Mould and I love Sugar. And I was thrilled to discover that you'd gone and done the artwork for the album Copper Blue by Sugar from your website. The images, the, the blue image at the top, the yellow image at the bottom. I confess, I don't actually know what's going on here. So... Talk me through. It's a beautiful cover. What's actually happening here? I also missed Husker Du. I was a little older for that kind of music. So I kind of missed them, but I, I knew who they were. And, you know, I, I respected them for sure. Um, and Sugar, when they came in, I have to say that Bob Mould is also one of my favorite artists I've ever worked with. He would come in. He's from Minneapolis, where Rikudis' distribution offices were. So we had an office out there. Everybody knew him out there. He'd fly into Boston. And he'd come out to the office for like two or three days and stay in town, go out to eat. Very, very cool guy. And and he would always make his way into the art department. And we would knock out a cover like in a day or two. And he would just sit there with me. He always had an idea, um, but he always asked my opinion. And it was a really mutually beneficial working relationship. He was just so much fun to work with, you know, and I could tell, I think, the break from marketing meetings and all that and getting into the art department with, you know, us. He dug that, you know, he definitely dug that. And so for Copper Blue, as far as I remember it, we're going on a number of years back, but that piece of art that you're talking about with the yellow at the top and the blue, it's something he brought in the way it looked as you see it. And we scanned it in there and just started fooling around with it. You know, and one of the things that's really interesting, you know, that you talked about uh, with Kevin and the album, and I'm sure other people, but, you know, band logos and, and how that all works. You know, that wasn't intended to be a logo. We were just working through with something and, and it was a very kind of uh, ambient image, the background. So I wanted to put something that was very strong for the type. And, you know, that's Helvetica in Surat. If every fan needs to know, that's what that is. Uh, and it works really, really, really well. It totally, I thought, was the band. And I was glad it became a logo. It wasn't the intention. It just worked well for the record. And, you know, we did that record cover. I'd say, I think it was one day. One day after lunch, whatever, we sat down and knocked it out. And, and that, that that logo, you know, I don't know if you know the album Beaster after that. It carried through for a couple of records and, you know, into some merch. So uh, it's interesting how that works out. So what are the actual images behind the logo and the title copper blue of the album, the blue and the yellow? What are they? I'm not sure whether it's, I'd have to look at it really closely, but I don't know whether it's like material or some kind of, yeah, it's it's just a, it's either material or sheets or so, something kind of just roll. It's ambient. You know, that's the way I'd best describe it. It's, <laughs> it's just, I don't know if there's a meaning there. I never asked him, you know, that's what he, he was, that's another situation where he's like, you know, I'd like to work with this image. And, and you know what it could mean after I just looked at it is, you know, I don't know if it's as simple as copper and blue. It's an ambient image, but those are kind of the yellow orange could be copper and then the top blue. Is it as simple as that? Ask Bob. Well, I'd love to get him on the show. Do you have his phone number? <laughs> I know people who do, and he's he's still a great guy. One of my favorites. Okay, 
close to home here. So we were having a discussion. I think we're sending each other typed messages and you made mention of a local band, Screaming Tribesmen, that you'd had a hand in the design of Bones and Flowers. So that, But just let me see if I got this right, because I think you were more involved with the re-release because it ended up on Ryko Disc or something like that, but you didn't actually design the original cover. What did you do for the re-release? Really only the type treatment. You know, they had a photograph that they wanted and it's a very busy photograph so you just have to figure out where to put the type and it's not that hard but you know again this is early on you know your options it wasn't as easy without a Mac not much I mentioned it because it's just funny screaming chives man and there's some great you know I've got a feeling it's a great pop tune Australia has a great history of rock and roll that was one that I worked on so the party's nearly over the guests are all but dead Take him to the graveyard Lay him down instead I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Richard and Linda Thompson, and I saw that you were involved with the design of Linda's album, Versatile Heart, which is one of her solo albums that I actually haven't heard. Talk me through that. I mean, the concept is, is these cartoon drawings, each one involving a picture of a heart, but they're all little characters they're shaped like a heart. I think that was an illustration as a whole, that there were, I think there's eight images, four across and two, two rows, which perfectly left me for a field of type. And because that was so you know hand drawn like you say and organic it's like so what how do we integrate type in here that accentuates that vibe without you know I, I, like i said i'm not an illustrator but again this was one where it's mostly type placement and crop a lot of albums start with artists or managers handing you something and say here's the color now it doesn't have type in it it's not crop obviously when you get to a five by five cd instead of a 12 by 12 record you think about things a little differently God forbid you have to go down to iTunes, 1,200 pixels. Oh so again, that that's one that was more kind of, you know, ma- not maintenance, but trying to make the typography work with what they wanted for a cover. And I think it does, you know, I think it does. I mean, that was one that was, here's what we want. And, and that happens a lot. They're the ones you're going to live with that cover, you know. Religions of men, heavy with fear. Industrial war against the land. Every woman knows the fugitive rich men keep living off the poor the soul is what's left after they eat your spirit when every act is an act of self-defense it's time to do something oh i've already gone and mentioned the artist by name but someone who i absolutely loved but particularly his first couple of albums was john trudell who has like a fascinating backstory. I'm not sort of going to go through the whole thing now. People out there, if you haven't heard any of the John Trudell albums, please go search him out. I think there's a 90-minute documentary you can find out on YouTube about him, but he went through a lot of tragedies and started writing poetry about activism and the injustices that he as a Native American had to face against the government. But the album cover that you designed was for his second album, Johnny Damison, Me. And I find that a really interesting cover because you've got several elements going on. You have John turning, he's shot in profile, he's sitting down and he turns to look at the photographer almost as if to say, well, you know, what do you want? Behind him, the background, it looks like something out of Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night. 
and it's all framed with what looks like the top and bottom of a piece of Kodak film. Um, that's a good, a good question. It was certainly a mashup by design. All of those elements I put together is kind of a collage. You know, that's another one where I thought, you know, the typography is really strong and becomes part of the story. The colors are really, really bright, which led to having that blue Van Goghish background. I think inside the type, if it memory serves, it's a yellow type color on the on the yes. cover. I think that's the same texture maybe that's behind him that I just inverted the color model. You know, I just made it yellow instead of blue, I think. That was like an old school collage, you know, and it works pretty well. You know, I like that one a lot. That would have been done by hand, right? Rather than computer? That's a good question. I think it was done by computer. I think that was the early day of Mac. I'm pretty sure it was. You know, I'm getting older. I forget. Too many album covers. <laughs> had you listened to the first album of John Trigal? Yeah. Are you familiar with him? It's pretty much our standard issue at, at Riker Disc is that the you know the music was made widely available to all the employees. You know, it's a small company, and a lot of times you know you have the mailboxes in the mailroom, and you know when a new artist was signed, there's a copy of their upcoming album in your mailbox, and Rounder was as well. But it was just an incredible collection of music fans, junkies. Just they knew everybody was a, a total music head. And so people really got involved in the music, you know, and, and you knew that and you knew the story. That doesn't mean everybody liked it all the time, but you knew what the artist was about before the record came out. specific album out of your own artwork that I want to ask about. This is not an album I've heard, but I saw the cover and thought, oh, wow, this has never been more pertinent, is one called Stop Handgun Violence. And there are a lot of album covers where it might be obscure. Uh, you might think, how does this relate to the music? What is this all about? This is obviously it's a collection of various artists who've gone and contributed songs, and I'm guessing that this is to raise money for stopping handgun violence. And the shot, notwithstanding like how you've manipulated the image, but the shot, but the the photo is like you, the viewer, are looking right into the barrel of a gun, and it's a close-up. It's not far away, so you're distant from it. This is showing clear and present danger. Tell me about how you got involved with that project. That image, you know, obviously that's a huge problem in the States. If you're on the left side, it's always been of concern. And with that record, Stop Hanging on Violence, I believe, is the political or, or uh, funding organization. But it was perfect for that. That's a stock image that I found and then just manipulated. And I think one of the things, two things that I think work really well about that one is certainly the perspective and the cropping because it is in your face. And that was by design. And one of the things that I really think is interesting about it is, is the cropping. And the reason this is done is because of, you know, marketing and, and artist rep. But um, there's, a, like you mentioned, a whole list of artists that had to be on the cover, right? Mm -hmm. There's probably like 20. So it's like, okay, where do I put this? So I moved the whole image and cropped it off to the left. So that cropped off like half. It's just, it's an old-fashioned, you know, I don't know, six-shooter, I guess you'd call it, you know, like a 38 special or something. And so I cropped it so that you only see half of the barrel of the bullet's guns looking at you. You see the full barrel of the gun, and then you see part of the hand, right? And so I thought that the... 
not only did that make room for me to list all the artists on the album cover in a way, it, I think it made it more kind of dangerous looking and immediate. And then I took it and, you know, fooled around with it. I think if you look at that close, you'll see all the pixelization in there, you know, because I had scanned it and scanned it and rescanned it. And I got it. To this, I didn't want that really crystal clear photograph. You know, I wanted something that was a little more arty, but also a little more just kind of edgy, you know. And I, I think that's a pretty edgy cover, you know. Uh, I recently put that back up on my website. I had taken it down until all that stuff, you know, rebooted here in America. And, you know, I think it's a very powerful image, you know, for a very important cause. Mm. And people need to see it more. Was that the cause that Harry Nilsson was involved with? Because I know he became a very big advocate against gun violence post John Lennon's murder. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. This is a fairly broad question, I know, but would you approach a musician's subsequent album, second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever, any differently to how you would their debut album? Because a debut album is, we're announcing, here's the artist, you've not heard him or her before, this band before, ta-da, here's the introduction. By the time you go further on down the track, yeah, you know who this is, and this is their statement, or is every album, regardless of where they appear in the catalogue, its own statement? Does that make any sense? Yeah, and I, I think the answer, again, is sort of both. You know, I think, by and large, you know, a debut album is going to have a face picture. And then as I was thinking about this while you were asking, the first record that popped into my head is Joe Jackson's debut, Look Sharp, which had his shoes on the cover. and a brilliant cover that everyone knows. So I think it depends. And, and, you know, that like we talked about earlier, sometimes you tie the image into the name of the record, right? Now, that's a very, really creative way to both get across the new wave style that Joe Jackson was with that title was to show pointy shoes, right? Mm-hmm. I, those jeans. Um, but I think generally speaking, and it depends, it, it depends on artists and ego. It really depends on management. And it really depends on label. You know, how are you going to market this? You know, how, how are you going to do it? I'm sure there's loads of debut albums that don't have... Well, look at the Sex Pistols, right? That didn't have, an album. That didn't have a picture on it. You know, to answer your question, yes. <laughs> Both. All. Right. But none. But I'm saying, like, I think it really depends on, on the philosophy of artist management, label, creative, what your resources are, uh, and how you want to portray the artist, you know? You know, in, in today's world, it's much more about the visuals, you know, and that has to do probably with TikTok and Facebook and this and that, where one singular image isn't enough. But back in the day, you know, you, your album cover, that was it. That's who you were, right. you know, at least for the six or eight months until your next record, you know. And if you cut your hair, holy crap, people freak out, you know. <laughs> or grew a beard. Or grew a beard. Or like Johnny Walker, stripped down buck naked. Right, so, yeah, yeah. Know. Well, yeah, who'd imagine that the guy who appeared on that flight of steps of the EMI building with his buddies on Please Please Me is five years later showing his wedding tackle to uh, to, to the world. <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's a sort of interesting thing, just sort of thinking about this part of the discussion a bit further, just looking at, say, the first two Beatles albums, and I'm talking about the, the British releases, not the uh, modified American releases as they came out, but looking at, say, Please Please Me is these four new to the world. I mean, they've been playing for a few years, obviously, and have been hardened in Hamburg, but it was these four fresh faces being introduced to the world, all smiling, looking down the stairwell, saying hello to the world and by the time they get to their second 
Zealand album, they're getting more arty. What was his name? Robert. Oh, I forgot the photographer, this guy, Robert, someone who became like their photographer for the next three, four years. And this very artful shot, black and white, three of them at one level. I think Ringo at a level below them and it's not something you would put on at least not in the early 60s at the time as a debut album but we've got the first one we were introduced right now we're part of your lives now we can get arty and there's a there's an evolution as you go on with Beatles album covers mentioned David Bowie before and there was an evolution in his album covers but that was more to do with the characters he was creating rather than evolution of the times or or hang on I think we can do this better you know went from Ziggy Stardust to Aladdin Sane to whatever other characters that he was trying to create but I was thinking about this only yesterday in terms of like an artist who had some longevity and album covers there's a side of it where there's an evolution as the music progresses as their style progresses but I'm also sort of wondering how much you've seen with album covers evolve as a sign of the times. So, like, for instance, I'm looking at the covers of Miles Davis and forget for a moment all the albums that he did for Prestige and there are tons of those. But just like when he went to Columbia and the first album he releases on Columbia, which is a gorgeous album shot. Uh, it's round about midnight and it's him holding his trumpet and looking close up to the camera wearing dark glasses and there's a beautiful red filter on that album cover and then you know you get some of the mid-60s albums i think with his second classic quartet and there's photos of whichever wife he was with at the time who was ever thinking of putting your wife on the front cover how does that relate to the music but maybe it was a sign of his love for them and then there's as he's getting into jazz fusion there's bitches brew which is this not quite abstract painting but it's, uh, it's more psychedelic i guess and then there's the early 70s ones like On the Corner illustration, very much almost like well, On the Corner, it almost looks like it's out of a, a Fat Albert cartoon. But that's a sign of the political times as much as anything from the jazz fusion of Bitches Brew and maybe a close up of In a Silent Way to what he's doing on On the Corner. So are there any other artists who you've noticed who evolve either for a, you know, a, a sign of the politics of the time as much as their music evolving? I mean, ha and have you ever been in a case where you say, right, we've got to do this different now because your music is a long way from what it was? Well, the first one that popped into my head, and I'm not sure it's a sign of the times, but I think it is the evolution of the band across times that started out rough. But, you know, I think uh, the body of work of the Talking Heads album covers is pretty brilliant. Mm -hmm. Just the pink cover, and then you've got more songs about building the foods with the Polaroids, and then you've got I mean, Fear of Music was brilliant, and then you had Remain in Light, which was brilliant. And those guys, I thought, did it really – and I'm sure David Byrne was quite involved. You know, different times too, though. You know, I mean, it would be interesting to see if 
there was a reflection, that'd be a really interesting examination today with all the shit going on here in America. I don't think so. You know, I, I don't know whether there's a fear or perhaps um, short-term memory loss about that. I mean, you know, especially with Miles Davis, there's cultural boundaries, there's political boundaries, there's, you know, spiritual boundaries when you get into some of those really es- ja- out there jazz records, right. you know. And uh, I don't know. I, I can't say. And I, I don't, for me, you know, I will say this, interestingly enough, you know, and I always like to promote him, rest in peace, uh, but Mikey Dredd, uh, who I loved, and I'm a big Jamaican music fan, and his productions with The Clash, who was a premier band with me, and I had the pleasure of working with him, and I got to even uh, do the track selection and sequencing for his greatest hits called Best Sellers. And that album cover, we just shot in a photography studio, you know, against a white seamless background. He was dressed to the nines, you know, like a Rasta. And for bestsellers, that's what it was called. You know, I emulated the typography from the New York Times bestseller list. So Mikey Dredd looks like New York Times and then bestsellers looks like theirs. And he's just standing there with his foot up on a stack of books, but he's holding, you know, an old Bible in his hands. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And after Best Sellers, we did a new record with Mikey, and it was considerably more commercial, maybe pop, but it was a different sound. And so, of course, we had to come up with a different look for the cover. Uh, The title track was called Obsession. And so what we did is we, uh, you know, took a cue from the Obsession by Calvin Klein perfume ads uh, that were huge at the time. And we even switched the name of the title. Instead of having it be Mikey Dread Obsession, we made the title of the record Obsession by Mikey Dread. And we did not have him on the cover. And instead, we hired, you know, a very attractive African-American woman. And we shot her in a very similar way to what those perfume ads were shot. You know, he turned it into sepia tone to have more of a brown color to it. And, you know, it said Obsession by Mikey Dread with a similar typeface, of course up in the corner. And then Mikey was on the back cover, which he didn't have a problem with because he totally got the concept. And we shot Mikey in very much the same way, a very tight headshot of him looking, you know, kind of pensively down. Just, he looked great. And, you know, dreads and all. And we see if tone that to match the cover, put the track like, listing on the back. And that was Obsession by Mikey Dredd. There was a point that was brought up in Kevin Hossman's film, The Album, and I spoke to him about this, but I'd like your take on this, Stephen. can't remember who it was in the film, but someone was talking about the whole notion of album covers, could they be iconic if the album itself had only sold 1,000 copies or something like that? Do they have to have sold a million copies to eventually be considered iconic? Not that every album that sells millions of copies has a cover that we're all revering nowadays, but an album that might have absolutely incredible artwork, but has only sold in small quantities, the music historians, maybe not even the music historians, but the everyday pundits who are talking about the so-called greatest albums of all time and, oh, wow, this wonderful image of the dark side of the moon or never mind and the like, where it seems like the artwork to have iconic status placed to it needs to be tied to the music. But I wanted to sort of get your thoughts as a designer for album covers, looking objectively maybe at 
some of the uh, work that's not necessarily your own. Are there album covers out there that you think deserve? I'm, I'm not comfortable with the word iconic status, but I'm going to go with that in their own right, despite the fact that they didn't sell squillions of albums. Well, I, I would personally be very careful about relating iconic to a number of sales. And I think throughout the art world, you can look at certain examples. You know, we know Andy Warhol at the very beginning of his career did not sell a lot of things. You know, uh, Jean-Michel Basquet the same way. You know, they became popular uh, through a different culture and perhaps a different generation. So we'll see. I think there's tons of examples. You know, we mentioned a couple earlier uh, with Joe Jackson looked sharp. We mentioned that he wasn't on the cover, but his shoes were. And I thought that was just a brilliant creative decision that I think most people recognize that album. It's probably sold a lot, but gazillions, probably not. The Sex Pistols, never mind the bollocks. I love that cover. I think that defined punk rock uh, for a long time. Didn't feature any pictures. Um, I, don't, I don't think the back cover as well, but that that's an iconic cover for sure, which I, that sold a lot. You know, I don't remember you know, I mean, I think they were dropped right after they released that record for their little swearing on TV incident. <laughs> Punk rock is an interesting one to go down too. you know, like all of the Ramones covers, which certainly share a vision, you know, they, I don't want to say they look alike, but the Ramones had a pretty strong brand early on and that they were consistent with, you know, another one, uh, Elvis Presley, you know, that first record um, of him black and white at the mic and the Elvis down the side in pink and Presley across the bottom. The clap opted that for London Colin. I brought up that cover with Kevin and, you know, we tend to think of Elvis as the the 20th century figure rather than less as Elvis the singer. And a lot of those subsequent albums that came out, the covers, uh, they, they, they look more like the previous generation's covers, you know, what you'd see with Frank Sinatra or, or the like. But, but yeah, that cover is fantastic. And now that you mentioned, it didn't occur to me that London Calling and that first Elvis Presley RCA cover could be related. Well, it's interesting because, of course, Elvis Presley is probably one of the, the major, you know, shapeshifters in the music business. The Beatles, of course, also, but Elvis was first. Uh, I put The Clash in there, too, and, and London Calling is probably in my top three all-time records, and I thought it was really interesting that they did that. Of course, with the imagery of Paul Simonon shattering his bass, it was a totally different presentation, but when you look at those covers side-by-side, side, it's pretty clear you know, which was the iconographic one, right? You know, I think that um, with Elvis shaking up the music industry through, you know, his take on what some people call race music or blues or whatever to a larger audience. And then, you know, London Calling for the Clash was just a, such a broader world of music. You know, there's Calypso on there, there's a little bit of jazz, there's... And it's just a great record, and it's very interesting that they would align themselves with that. And I think that cover stands on its own, even if you haven't seen the Presley one. But if you look at them side by side, it's a different take, right? I'm glad we're having this conversation because that really never occurred to me. But but now that I'm thinking about it, I can't get that image out of my head with those two images side by side out of my head. So well thought. Boys and girls, London calling. Now don't look to us. Phony Beatlemania is putting the dust. All right, well, look, this has just been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I've loved getting an idea into how you work and to how you think. 
When we started talking about doing this show, you sent me a link to a trailer. I'm not sure if it's like a teaser trailer or something that you've already put out, but it looks like you're going into the business of making a film yourself. And this sounds absolutely fascinating. Can you talk through the film that you're putting together? Well, I'd like to probably uh, disqualify the notion that I'm going into the business first off and foremost, because it's been like two and a half years since we started, and two and a half years, I probably would have churned out 300 album covers. I I don't think I can take that. That delay. COVID, of course, has something to do with it. But this all sprang uh, from the allmusicbooks.com website, where uh, I came across a book called Rock and Roll Billboards of the Sunset Strip by Robert Landau. And he was a teenage kid in L.A. during the late 60s and 70s, you know, and walking, lived right there, walking down the streets. He noticed these billboards changing and finally bought a Nikon camera and took pictures of them. Those billboards are super iconic. But once their lease was up, which was usually monthly, they were taken down and the boards were whitewashed and gone forever. And Robert has about 2,000, 2,500 slides of all these pictures. And you know, as a, a visual person and, and as a rock and roll fan, especially that era, it was just so compelling, I thought. I reached out to him and I did a five questions with him on my web blog back in the old days before there was a podcast. And, you know, we just struck up a conversation and I said, I have a friend of mine who's done a lot of rock docs out in L.A. Would you mind if I sent him a copy of your book and maybe we could have a conversation about whether this would make a movie? I reached out to my friend, and he's a guitar player as well as a filmmaker, and he just said, this is great. You know, send me a treatment. And we just started working on it. We're still the three of us, and as well as other people. But the director, myself, I wrote and produced it, and we got some angel investments. And Robert, we're all putting it together. We're getting really, really close. COVID put us a little behind, but we recently interviewed Robert Daltrey and Paul Stanley. And, uh, you know, it's just we had so much cheap trick and Robbie Krieger from The Doors. And we got a lot of people who were there and tell this story. And it's amazing because ultimately it's all of the things that we've talked about on this interview. You know, it's, uh, it's music, it's visuals and graphics, it's culture. LA has a very uh, special culture and always has with music. And that's changing. And we follow that into where it's gone from hand-painted billboards to digital or movie billboards now. It's fascinating. And so we hope to have it out, hopefully, soon. As part of your research going into this film, did you discover that there were any other towns in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world that had a similar culture of putting up billboards of album covers? Or was that very much an L.A. thing? It was very much an L.A. thing. But, of course, New York City had them. Mm. And Paul Stanley and Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister tell a similar story, which is amazing, about Grand Funk Railroad billboards right in the center of um, Times Square. And they're great stories. I'm not going to give it away. They tell a similar perspective. But due to a union strike, they were up there for a really long time. So, you know, it's fascinating. Um, You know, there's other places they appear, but I think it's really limited to that. As far as I know, I mean, here in Boston, I don't see anything like that. I think it was unique to L.A., but of course, New York got in the biz because that was the head of the record industry until it moved to L.A. And so they probably were kind of, you know, just keep on keeping on. But, you know, they had some. And, you know, there's the John Lennon wars over right in Times Square. Right, day. right, right. Yeah. So they're there. But, you know, I think L.A. kind of rules that world. But it's, it's interesting. We're talking before about evolution of album covers. But what you're talking about there is evolution of how to present an art form. And we've gone from 
well, I mean, okay, album covers always existed, but there was, you've gone from presenting that to the general public on billboards to showing it on a website on your phone. It's gone from something huge to something absolutely tiny, and this is supposed to be progress. I'm an old man shaking my fist at a cloud at the moment, but I don't know who it is that thinks, apart from, you know, whatever it is that the finances and the budget they go with, I don't know how anyone thinks that that's a good idea. It's difficult, too, because, you know, I think one of, uh, if you're of a certain age, one of the high points of your youth was when somebody bought a new album and you all went back to somebody's house and listened to it, and the album inevitably got passed around the room and the record gets flipped over. And it was a much more communal uh, listening experience, right? MP3s and, and that whole digital revolution has made it, you know, earbuds in a very singular experience. Um, obviously, now you get things like Spotify, which... You know, Spotify playlists have essentially replaced mixtapes, right? right? Which is great. I mean, I learned so much music from friends' mixtapes. Some of it I hated, but, you know, that's the way it goes, right? But, you know, it is what it is, you know. Um, I, the art piece is, is a bit of a bummer, but, you know, it is what it is. Well, anyway, look, once again, Stephen, thank you so very, very much for your time. I really love this conversation. People out there, I will be putting links in the show notes to Stephen's website so you can check out some of these album covers that he's uh, designed over the years and also um, would urge you to subscribe to All Music Podcasts Deep Dive. You want to get some great music book recommendations. I'd also uh, reach out to these people, as I mentioned, you know, with the music industry changing. I work with a lot of independent musicians, and regardless of my, my portfolio, I find it fascinating. So for your listeners, if you're a band and you want a great album, go over, reach out. You know, we can make it work. Mm, so. Fantastic. All right, we'll be back in a moment to uh, talk about what's going to be on episode 160 of Love That Album podcast. We'll be back in a moment. Once again, my huge thanks to Stephen Jurgensmeyer for being so generous with his time and discussing the art of album cover design. We have hundreds, maybe thousands of these albums in our collections. They're like works of art in their own right, and some of them are great and some of them are not so great. But we listen to the music. That's really ostensibly why we buy our records and CDs. This is a very important part of what draws us in if we don't know the music in the first place. And it's always a pleasure to look at the album cover art when we listen to the music. I mean, I'm not telling you anything, of course, that you don't already know or don't already feel yourself, but I just wanted to reiterate that. And so, once again, my huge thanks to Stephen for talking about his work and his philosophy on an important part of the music listening experience. Episode 160 is due out in August of 2022. However, I've decided not to record the episode for August. I will be releasing it in September. Now, I've gone and stuffed up a little bit. I know it's surprise, surprise, right? Because when do I not normally stuff things up? Yeah, well, yeah, story of my life. Anyway, there was an album I was going to discuss with a first-time guest to the show. And I'm not going to reveal what the album is because we still got to work some things out. But that will hopefully be coming up 
maybe in October, maybe November. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm very disorganized. I've tried to be reasonably organized this year. I have this lovely card here, which has everything written down that I was supposed to be doing this year. But yet still somehow I've managed to muck things up. So my apologies if you're listening out there and you're thinking, hang on, I was supposed to be doing a show with you. Why isn't that happening? It will happen. I'm just not very organized this time around. So what is it that we're doing? You're probably thinking, get to the point. All right. So when we do get around to episode 160, which will be in September of 2022, I'll be speaking with the author, uh, Michael Elliott. He has gone and written a biography of John Hyatt. And I know that that name, if you know the history of this show, has been something of a Voldemort to mention, but we broke that curse back at episode 100 of Love That Album. Go back and read through the show notes of previous shows or go through the Facebook group. I'm not going to explain the whole thing again. Not now anyway. Uh, So yeah, Michael Elliott has gone and written a biography of John Hyatt called Have a Little Faith. I'm going to discuss with him his biography and John Hyatt's life in general. And I'm going to be joined by another podcaster from the Pantheon Network. And just like Stephen, he also has a focus on music-related books. The fellow is Nathan Wilcox, and he has a terrific show that you really need to check out called Let It Roll. I sent Nathan a note and asked him whether he'd be interested in talking about a book on my program and grilling Michael with some questions about uh, John Hyatt's biography. And I was honored that Nate said he would be more than happy to do so. So there you go. September of 2022, I'll be joined by Nate Wilcox to speak with Michael Elliott about the John Hyatt biography that he's written called Have a Little Faith. Looking immensely forward to that. You would have gotten all the details for how to contact me earlier on in the show from Joanne, so I'm not going to repeat them here. But just once again, may I remind you to tune in in August to episode 100 of the See Here podcast. Actually, please go back through the archive. I'd love it if you went and listened to some earlier episodes of See Here podcast. But if you want to start afresh with episode 100, then please, I'd be honoured. Amadeus will be the focus once again of episode 100 and... Uh, Bernie and I will be joined once again by Mike White of the Projection Booth and Will Smith, no, not that Will Smith, the real Will Smith of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema podcast. So until we join you again next month for See Here and in September for Love That Album, please be nice to each other. Please look after each other. Put up some posts in the Love That Album or See Here Facebook groups in relation to music or music-related films that you're digging on at the moment. So until we speak again, all the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.